Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around planet Earth. This is the EdTech Situation Room for August the 30th, 2017, episode 63. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you as your new co-host, wearing the Red Beats headphones. <clears throat> We're guessing that most of you are probably listening to this and not watching, so it may not matter, but... Uh, yes, I do fancy myself a superhero where it comes to <clears throat> solving technology problems, although I'm only effective because I happen to be connected to a lot of people far smarter than I. But I am still the director of technology at the Cassidy School, excited to be starting my third year there. Just came fresh from our lower division uh, back to school night where we showed off Seesaw and connected parents and grandparents and kids recording their voices and all kinds of exciting things. And I am joined as always by the fire dodging and rain inviting Jason Neifer in Missoula, Montana. How are you, Jason? I am doing well. And because I knew you would want, want to hear about this, um, right now the um, PPM 2.5, which means the amount of smoke in the air is 75, which means that the air outside is unhealthy um, for humans. So we are currently in the middle of several wildfires in western Montana. Of course, the irony is that the um, awful disaster in Texas and um, the broader Gulf Coast region, um, we would love to have uh, not all of that rain, but a little bit of that rain on uh, for the fires in western Montana. And of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to everyone that's been affected by that tragedy and those being affected by, of course, the tragedy here in western Montana as well. The weather is, is very diverse um, in our vast land. So, um, yes, I live in Missoula, Montana, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state public virtual school, which is located on the University of Montana campus. And, um, and again, it's, it's pretty smoky here. So I've been describing the air as chewy the last four weeks or so, and it was kind of extra chewy today. So we're hopeful that most of August has been pretty smoky here, and we're hoping that in the next few weeks that we'll start getting a reprieve as September um, starts to bring fall to big sky country. So, um, yeah, um, lots of interesting things going on um, in the technology space. And of course, the EdTech Situation Room is all about taking technology news and looking at it through an educational lens. And every week we provide, you know, interesting reading from our past look at the week's technical news. And you can find all the links we discuss at our website at www.edtechsr.com. You can also find us on Twitter where we post um, uh, uh, warnings about us going online or we're warning people soon we will be online um, and you can join our live uh, viewership um, which is also a, a great way to interact with us as we do the show so Wes why don't I go ahead and kick us off this week and I thought um, there's actually a couple of different things that are related that we could go through and I want to start off with um, there is apparently a September 12th event, so we're, we're less than two weeks away from an Apple event, which almost everyone presumes is going to be a phone event, um, although there are some rumors um, in the other direction. And the reason why I thought we would start this is both to talk a little bit about the rumors about what the new iPhone looks like, and then also maybe uh, we've touched on this topic quite a bit, and um, as, as uh, longer time listeners probably know, Wes is definitely a, a, a pretty strong Apple advocate. Um, I'm a love all tech advocate, so I use Macs and PCs and Linux boxes and Chromebooks and Android phones and an iPad. 
um, partly because that the, my day job involves uh, supporting 3,500 users of which I don't control the ecosystem. So I have people coming to me all the time with technical problems with a variety of interesting technical solutions. But um, I think it's safe to say we both believe that Apple puts out excellent products and that they have been really the leader in both mobile computing and also current generation laptops are almost all influenced in some way, shape or form from the form factors that Apple has been very persuasively selling to um, professionals and otherwise for the last at least 10 years, as I, I think Apple's been kind of the lead of, of, of um, design. So I guess I'd start with Wes, um, maybe asking your thoughts about there's an iPhone coming out. It may be um, it could be a 7S. It could be an 8. There's some discussions back and forth what that looks like. I think that's less important. But is there anything Apple could do? Um, or I guess what would Apple have to do to surprise you in the, the release of an iPhone? And, and I think part of this is it's not Apple's fault at all. I think everything is really incremental now because the smartphone design is where it is. That the first generations of iPhones, the first generation of Android phones, you know, there's a lot of competition between the two because they kept topping each other and developing features. But feature sets of modern smart, smartphones are, are fairly um, static now, and it's really ele- uh, a very incremental change that happens in reiterations of phones. But is there anything that they can announce on September 12th that would surprise you or something you're really looking for in a new generation of phone? Well, definitely, I would be surprised and shocked if either of these things happened, <clears throat> and they would just it would go counter to what we've seen Apple do, so I'm sure they won't. But if they would announce that AirPlay is an open standard and they are investing in the cross-platform ability of folks to wirelessly stream to an Apple TV, that would just blow me away. We have, we have and are making investments in school uh, with the Apple TV platform, and overall that's been very successful. Uh, we had some interesting learning actually today with some testing we were doing uh, with our, our theater and music folks um, with some new features, but basically pretty rock solid. However, you know, it presents challenges when you have a separated student network and faculty network and when you want to stream other kinds of devices like Windows devices, Android devices, etc. cetera. Um, I do have a story for my Geek of the Week, which is a, a Chrome story, Jason, so you'll appreciate this because I'm going to give Google lots of love there. But uh, I don't expect Apple to do that. You know, we've seen Apple differentiate themselves in the marketplace. I, I'm thinking of iTunes U as an example, saying, hey, you got to get an Apple device, you know, in order to get this content. And while I love my Apple devices and, you know, I, I uh, we are a cross-platform school. We have a variety of devices we support. However, on the faculty side, we're over 90%, you know, MacBook uh, I don't expect Apple to do that, but I would love if they would do that because AirPlay is such a solid, mature, robust technology that, in my experience, puts everything else to shame. The second thing I would say would surprise me, but I'm, I'm sure they're not going to do this, if if uh, Tim Cook walks out and says, folks, today we're announcing all you need is this phone because we have allowed you to connect directly to HDMI and you'll be able to wirelessly connect your keyboard and and this is the only PC you need. Um, Tommy Snyder, who's one of our um, tech staff, he's a he's a actually three quarters debate coach and, and quarter time IT guy with us. But he has had a a love affair with Windows phones. Amazingly, you may not know anybody; they're very kind of rare to find. But he's one of them, and it was truly impressive. He's I think he's actually stepped yes. back and he's he's back to the iPhone. But 
he really wanted Microsoft to make it because one of the things they were doing was exactly what I'm describing, where you can plug your phone directly into your HDMI, you don't uh, monitor at your desk, and you've got your whole Windows desktop there, and with things in the cloud, etc., you know, you can compute with just your phone. But I don't expect any either of those things to happen, and honestly, this will be the first time in our family where I'm expecting not to do the upgrade um, because of the way things kind of flow in our family. Uh, we, we got a seven for our son before he went back to college and our girls are just chomping at the bit. The youngest is on a five. If you can believe we run such old technology in our family. <clears throat> so I think probably mom will upgrade to what we expect to be the eight and then her phone will go to the, the senior and then the senior's phone goes down. So how about you? Are you expecting to be surprised? And uh, what would just knock you off your, your seat if, if Apple was to announce it? Well, I, I, I join you in saying that someone's going to figure that out eventually in a, in a large, <coughs> excuse me, well-accepted platform. But the, the ability to have what is they're turning to be really high-function, high-power devices into a de facto laptop would, would really be a, a game-changer. And I think that, you know, um, we, we went, uh, the, the nerds of the world went from being kind of three-device folks, uh, tablet, phone, laptop, to two-device people. I mean, a lot of people do still carry around tablets, but when you see two devices, it's usually a phone and a laptop or a phone and a tablet, right? The tablet sometimes becomes a de facto laptop in that scenario, but the ability to turn it into a functional laptop in a powerful enough OS to run, um, you know, the standard kind of applications that, that mobile power users want to use would be a really amazing thing. And there's been a lot of effort on that um, from third-party manufacturers. You probably, if you, you follow any tech and social media at all, you've probably seen that there's a couple of companies working on plug-in laptop shells, essentially, where you take a cable, plug it into the, the USB port on your Android phone or the lightning port on your iPhone, and that then becomes uh, what powers a de facto laptop because whether you know it or not, they ship in anything from a medium to a high-end phone, so that's really any iPhone or any mid-range to high Android phone is really an incredibly powerful chip, and it's one of the reasons why phones are, are, are starting to tip up in price, and that's one thing I want to talk a little bit about tonight um, is the the $1,000 phone, which is now the, the new upper limit of phones um, on the premium end. But, yeah, I think that would be a, a really extraordinary thing. Um, I think the ship has sailed for me on iPhones um, in that I am very happy with the Android ecosystem, and, um, you know, and I, I tend to use um, older um, thus cheap and used Android phones or newer phones that are on the medium end. So uh, my current phone is a, a three-and-a-half-year-old um, Galaxy Note 4, which I picked up dirt cheap on eBay and then um, are able to put a big battery case, as I discussed in last week's episode, um, related to, to that. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, the ship has sailed there for me. But I do really think that... Um, you know, there's some rumors about Apple TV upgrades. Um, I did recently upgrade from an Apple TV 2 to the new Apple TV, the thicker one that's got the installable apps, and it's a beautiful platform. Um, you know, I've used um, Roku's. I've used uh, the player from Amazon that I can't think of the name of now. Um, I've used... Um, uh, an Android TV and also oh, the Fire TV is from the, the Amazon piece. I've even um, you know plugged in a PC before as a media PC into a computer or into a, a television to try to use that. And nothing beats the new interface that allows you to stall apps for a really elegant experience 
for watching television. The search is wonderful. Um, one of the articles I posted tonight related to Apple is that um, uh, Apple won an Emmy Award, a technical Emmy Award for the voice search on um, the remote control on the new Apple TV. And I'll tell you, that piece of technology is nothing short of amazing. It really is quite, quite amazing. You can easily type passwords in using your voice. Uh, the search on the Apple TV is really quite functional and searches everywhere where it has an API into your media library. And so oftentimes you can find something for free you would otherwise pay for. It's really an extraordinary um, piece of hardware. And if they could somehow top that, and I'm not quite sure what it would be, but if they could somehow top that, there's some rumors of 4K movies being available on a 4K Apple TV. But to be honest, I don't even, I don't even have a, a 1080p television. I have a, a, a 760, is it 760? 7 whatever it is, uh, uh, 7, P 7, television. 7, yeah, 720p television. And I just, you know, the people running around with their 85 inch 4K televisions and then, you know, there's 8K televisions on the way and yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm very happy with, I, I have a massive size monitor. I'm staring into a 30 inch Dell monitor, but, um, I'm okay with a smaller television. So yeah, the Apple TV, I think would be really great. Um, and I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of rumors on what could be on the phone. The button apparently may not, um, uh, or may disappear. That's actually a, a perennial rumor. I think the last couple of years that the home button may disappear, um, in order just to have a, a, a certain kind of press on the screen. Um, I've heard bezel-less going around, and by bezel-less, I mean the current phones are pretty bezel-less right now, but um, I would say, you know, the Android phones are heading in that direction now, and so, um, you know, getting rid of any perceptible uh, bezel on the phone I think could be an interesting thing. Again, that doesn't do much for me, but that's going around the rumors. And then um, uh, I, j I read a, an interesting thing that I think was, and I wish I could find the link uh, today when I was working on the show notes, but... Um, bringing back the, the headphone jack, uh, is apparently a, a rumor that's going around, but I would say that's highly, highly doubtful. So, um, because Apple doesn't turn back on those decisions, I realize it's a new Apple, but yeah, it's not like they're going to tomorrow announce that the floppy drive is going to make a comeback in the iMac. So I think we're good to go there. So I'd ask you one other question related to this, Wes. Um, a lot of tech media is framing this as one of Apple's most important events in years because there's a perception that Apple has has uh, basically uh, stopped evolving, stopped innovating. Um, and so how do you rate the importance of the September 12th announcements? You know what? I think that there's there's an entire ecosystem, and you and I probably listen to a number of podcasts and podcasters yes. who make their living uh, as as a feeding frenzy on these events yes. and talking about this kind of thing. And I think it's it's overblown. You know, Apple is very dominant. Their technology uh, is fantastic. I do. You know, I think on the on the long game, as far as AI with Google, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out, but. Yeah, I, I mean, we saw iPad sales go up, right? The pundits were saying, oh, yes. it's the end. We're just, you know, we've reached, it's like peak oil. We've reached peak iPad. You know, it's never going to keep going up. And then, you know, Apple with, I mean, there's lots of smart folks working for Apple, right, with the ways they're differentiating their line with the pro and the standard. And then I think also the price point for schools. I know for us, right. you know, I was shopping for used iPads because, it was a pretty significant difference if we were going to buy a generation or so back and now at $300 for the, the brand new one. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't buy the hype. So I do think that, 
you know, Apple is going to continue to to push the envelope and innovate. I'd be really shocked. I would be shocked if they bring the headphone jack back. I've never seen Apple do that, right? When they when they took the DVD, the CD DVD out of, of of the computer, you know, even before that, the floppy disk, right? The iMac. Oh my gosh, there's no floppy disk. Uh, now with the new MacBooks, where we have the USB C only, you know, it right. was they're always early with that stuff, but but basically they're always right in terms of those big bets that they're making with technology. So um, it's also interesting how it's almost not a, a, you know, surprise in terms of what's announced because of leaks and things that come out of factories and these different, you know, sources and, and stuff like that. So I would kind of be surprised if we are surprised, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be, you know, another generation, uh, another another evolution. I do think we're going to see uh, wireless charging at some point. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a big deal, and so that could be something. But you know, we're we're seeing incremental change amidst exponential growth. But you know, every every year, a little bit better, a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I I, I don't uh, think the sky is going to fall if if we don't see something spectacular to talk about here in a few weeks after the event's over. Yep, absolutely. So. Okay, where should we head off next? All right, well, I was a little late getting articles in, but I dropped one towards the bottom from Snopes, Fake News, Hurricane Harvey Edition. And I actually found this this week when, yes, I saw a picture I just could not believe. And it is an alleged photo of the airport at Houston that, you know, has all of these Delta airline, I think that's Delta, you know, submerged. They've got all these aircraft. And I'm like, okay, I actually flew as a pilot. I know folks that fly. You know, the first thing you do when a hurricane's coming in is you get all the aircraft out, right? We have this happen in, in Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base and, and our, our uh, uh, you know, civilian air, air, air base as well. So I knew that there were not flooded airplanes that Delta had just somehow not, you know, flown away because, oh, we just don't know that this hurricane's coming. So there's a picture of a shark supposedly, you know, swimming in, in the highway waters and, um, you know, Obama serving flood victims, um, the flooded airport picture. Interestingly, this I think this is updated. They had the actual picture of the flood on the Snopes page, and I wonder from a copyright standpoint if they took it away. Um, that particular picture is is actually – a visualization of what LaGuardia Airport could look like at high tide with five feet of sea level rise. But, uh, yeah, alligator on the loose, um, you know, the list goes on and on. So to have the, the educational spin, great opportunity. I mean, certainly what, what Jason said about, you know, thoughts and prayers and folks in Houston, uh, Facebook and social media is a great thing, right, to be able to check in with people and, and see where folks are. But I know several people who have evacuated and whose homes, you know, may be a total loss and just, you know, just devastating. It definitely seems like this, the scale of this is going to be at another level. Um, but uh, when it comes to digital citizenship, talking to students about digital literacy, yes. uh, we need to be checking, right? And, and literally, this was a, a good little digital citizenship story because I was about to to click the retweet, you know, button. And I was like, now, wait a minute. I got to check that out. You know, so Google Snopes, Houston airport flooded, you know, and then boom, immediately Snopes is there. So, uh, I have, uh, continued to try and, and wage the good fight for some people. And I think it's helped with, with some folks in my family, perhaps with others, you know, saying before you, 
you know, send that email before you forward that on. Let's check it out. So have you encountered any fake news lately, Jason? And uh, I guess on a more serious note, are, do you know anybody in Houston or, or in touch with anybody down there? Who's I, I have family in Houston, so and they're all okay. Um, my, I have an aunt and her two kids uh, both teach in the, in the Houston area. And so um, actually Houston, one other area. But they, yeah, every everyone is made to safety and it's all good. Um, my aunt and her husband, um uh, ended up in a shelter for a bit and then were able to to make its way to my my cousin's house but um what what's oh and I should also say my family's got a lot of my wife's family my wife has a lot of family in Texas as well and they're they're all uh, okay too although uh, she posted a video yesterday of a, na- a neighborhood that a late aunt um had lived in um before she passed away a few years ago and it was completely underwater like they were all very thankful today that she didn't have to be around to experience that terrible tragedy in her neighborhood so um, I, I want to mention one other thing related to fake news. And actually, let me let me answer the original question. I, I I've been really interested in the political fake news related to who to blame for things in Katrina. Um, of course, um, the uh, Hurricane Katrina was under George Bush's administration, and you may remember there's lots of controversy afterwards about um, you know the response of the Bush administration. And I'll let you make your own opinions there of, of that process. But it's really interesting now because there's a bunch of, of, of memes being generated to suggest that whatever perception of, of President Trump's response was better than President Obama's response during Hurricane Katrina. And of course, uh, Mr. Obama was not president during Katrina. That was under George Bush's administration. So, um, you know, that that kind of stuff and the political hand wringing and that sort of thing is, is, is of course, uh, quite terrible. But the, the thing I wanted to mention is that to put this in a bit of perspective, there's a really excellent new podcast by NPR called Rough Translation, and and the the rough idea of the podcast is they go to other countries to try to get a perspective on American news, and so their first episode was about fake news, and they spent their time in the Ukraine and uh, talking about you know Russia's influence in that region and their attempt to gain territory in East Ukraine during that situation, which is still in many ways ongoing. And the interesting thing about it was that it was fake news and fake news techniques that that apparently the Russian government was bombarding the Ukraine with in order to create a sense of panic in order to get support on the ground in the Ukraine. And I knew the the basics of that story. But this um, uh, uh, NPR journalist in this first episode of the Rough Translation podcast actually goes to the Ukraine and. Um, it, it's a fascinating set of stories, the most interesting of which that uh, people were tired of seeing journalists because they said the journalists would show up and 20 minutes later that area would be bombed, almost as if they knew where to go. And just bizarre things that, that I think are really worth a listen. And if I were teaching um, any sort of class that had anything to do with information literacy, social studies, English language arts, uh, media, um, that it's a wonderful podcast. So I just dropped that. Um, really great storytelling podcast in the show notes for the week. Outstanding. <clears throat> hey, welcome to Peggy George uh, coming to us from Phoenix, Arizona, and Marta coming to us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And uh, Peggy had asked in the chat if I, if we had any updates as far as Snopes, because we had talked a few weeks ago about a fundraising campaign, which they had to try and save themselves. I read in maybe it might have been those same articles or some others just backstory as far as the controversy which had to do with the website and control over that and really some internal you know uh, disagreement about who controlled 
the, the website and, and controlled Snopes, but I haven't heard anything new. Have, have you, Jason? I think you're muted. You're muted. Yeah, sorry, I muted myself because I just realized that my ridiculous keyboard was making a lot of noise. So, um, no, I've not. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and look that up quickly to see. I know that I'd seen some headlines a few weeks after. I want to say that it's, that there was a stay or a, conju- uh, a conjunction, an injunction um, that was granted. But I'm going to look that up. Why don't you move us on to our next story, Wes? Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, let's talk a little bit about biotech. So we have talked about the amazing technology called CRISPR on the show before. And so there is a new CRISPR-related headline that has um, hit NPR, and I can find it here. Uh, they're talking about human embryos and um, being able to, you know, being able to edit genes. And while we might think first about like designer babies and, you know, Oh, I want my, you know, my child to have blue eyes and, you know, long hair or or whatever. um, They talk, they talk in here that the, the surgeons and the scientists are actually calling this DNA surgery. And when you look at the number of mutations that lead to all kinds of, um, you know, dangerous and, and negative conditions, Huntington's disease, cystic fibrosis, uh, possibly inherited forms of Alzheimer's, breast cancer, you know, millions of people being affected by these things. And so CRISPR, and you can search, Chris, CRISPR has just one R, not an E-R. So it's CRISP, C-R-I-S-P, and then the letter R. And if you look back in our show notes, you can find some really good links to some Radiolab podcasts talking about this and some other things. It's a genomic, um, you know, snipper. So it's possible to go in and snip out the part of the genetic code that you don't want. In this case, it could be the genetic code that creates uh, cystic fibrosis. And so that is snipped out of, of the embryo. And then um, the uh, desirable, um, I guess it's an enzyme, but it, it is, it, it grafts itself on sort of spontaneously and then heals itself from that kind of a mutation. Uh, so Jason, what should we do about this in schools? I mean, is there a place to be talking about bioethics or is that just something that doctors need to do and nurses when they're, you know, in school in medical school? What, I mean, what do you think the educational implications of this are for, for today? It's my understanding that, that, um, the kind of modern day biology course has evolved quite a bit in the last 15 years because of, of, of stuff like this, right? Now that we're starting to see a more molecular, um, uh, more micro uh, view of biology in the world. Um, my science teachers tell me all the time that, that, you know, um, there's been a very, very different way of approaching biology. And, and I, in almost every science class that I've ever been a part of from an academic standpoint. So I, I'm a curriculum director for my organization. So I do spend some time uh, working within the context of the science programs and, um, they all tell me that ethics is, is, is becoming an increasing part of what they do in context of science programs because, you know, it's, it's today's students that becomes tomorrow scientists and ethics, of course, is a big part of any science program at any modern day um, college or university. But I think that's starting to make its way into the K-12 educational arena as well. And if I remember correctly, the next generation science standards also um, did have a, a heavy focus on helping teach scientific ethics 
um, you know, even to the, the lay scientists that, that they were uh, mostly uh, teaching for the future. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very important thing. And, you know, and I think this kind of stuff, I mean, current events information is, is available in an unprecedented way compared to classrooms even 20 years ago. They take advantage of that by using these, these modern day articles that oftentimes will, will, will point to directly to the scientific literature that you can then also point to students to as well. But, you know, push these out over your Google Classroom, print these out for your, for your kiddos, whatever your pieces, use them as great discussion, both as engagement tools, but also because talking about that stuff is part of the reason why we teach science and social studies and literature um, and things across the academic spectrum. And on a technical note, something that comes to my mind is, you know, filtered searches. CRISPR, uh, like I said, it doesn't have ERs, so it's CRISP and an R, is a very unique term. And so that can be like an ideal information literacy search filtering tool, or, or just not tool, but, um, you know, example that you can use. So go into Google News and search for CRISPR. You can set an alert so that, and you may not want to get that via email, but you can have different kinds of alerts. Uh, my favorite way is to create an RSS feed, which sounds very geeky. It sounded geeky, you know, 10 years ago. It still is geeky. Not a lot of people do this, but hey, you know, real simple syndication. So what you do is you go to Google News and you do that search, and then there's uh, a way that you can click a link to create that feed. And then uh, if you're still using RSS readers, I, I use Feedly, F-E-E-D-L-Y. I still have uh, feeds that I'll read. And then you can set that up so you can just click on that and see the latest articles that have been in Google News that mention CRISPR. I'll also say that, you know, Twitter has a great search function. And so social media like Twitter is a is a good way. And especially when you're looking for something unique like that, it's a unique tag. It's a unique acronym. Um, you know, that that makes for some good filtered searches. And so that might, it might actually be something I share with our science faculty because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for what you said that, you know, we're, we're taking ethics seriously in all kinds of STEM fields. I might've told the story about the summer talking with a employee of one of the Kansas school districts where I was uh, attending a conference and presenting. And he was talking about his, uh, you know, computer science programming instructor who was including case studies regularly about would you do this? You know, what is the line? Is this going to be ethical? You know, those kind of things in a coding context. So hopefully we are doing that. And whether you're listening to us live, I think we have a, a mysterious third viewer. So if you want to type into the chat and let, let us know uh, who you are, if you would like to show yourself. But if you're listening to this later, you know, give us some feedback. Let us know our, our teachers. At your school and your community, you know, talking about CRISPR, talking about these kind of things, it's probably not something that has hit mainstream consciousness. Like everybody's like, oh, yeah, CRISPR, I know about that. But it uh, is something that we need to be talking about and discussing because there's going to be a lot of interesting decisions that we will have to make. And, and hopefully they are going to make us healthier and, you know, help us live longer and increase those longevity lines that we see optimistically happening across the developing world. Absolutely so. So, Jason, what would you like to chat about next? Um, let's go on to um, – there's a couple of interesting hardware updates I thought would be interesting to chat about. Um, Google apparently is going to be releasing um, a Pixel. And for those of you that do not remember the Chromebook Pixel, and it's sad because it's going to bring I, – I have a Pixel 1 now that I'm – 
playing around with that I picked up um, unbelievably cheap in light of how beautiful the hardware is. Because um, that was like a $2,000 laptop when it came out. It, it was, and I picked it up uh, used for $115. So, no and, way! Yeah, and it's it's easily easily the nicest piece of hardware I've ever had in my hands. But the, the sad part about it, and actually I'll kind of front load the story, the reason why this is an interesting story to me, um, I have this Pixel, um, its price was was you know uh, 15 times what I paid for it, and the interesting phenomenon of it is, is it's scheduled to stop being updated in May of next year. So the end of life policy for the the Google Pixel version one from 2013 um, is less than a year away. And again, it's it's probably the the, the nicest laptop um, I've, I've I've had my hands on. Touchscreen, beautiful high resolution display, excellent build quality excellent keyboard. Does that mean you actually won't be able to update the Chrome on it? So that's that's the, the interesting part, that the way Google puts it, in fact, I'm going to put the, the, the Chromebook end-of-life policy in the show notes, um, but they have picked a date for every Chromebook. And remember, um, you know, Chrome OS is not like Microsoft. Um, Chrome OS is only on devices that have been approved by um, a Google. Google has a partnership with about 15 um, what's referred to as OEMs or original equipment manufacturers who then make Chromebooks that um, are um, updated by Google because they make the Chrome OS software. And um, originally it was announced that the policy was going to be five years for Chromebooks. And then on you know X device and newer, they've actually gone to six and a half years. And for 90% of the Chromebooks, Six and a half years of updates is 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 quite reasonable because they're oftentimes dirt cheap hardware that's very slow and great because you can you know push them out to large numbers of students for for almost next to nothing. But something that I think is really interesting with about the Pixel, my Pixel One won't be updated um, after April. Or I think it's April May of 2018, and I, from my understanding, it means that Google won't guarantee updates to the Chrome operating system. And what's interesting to me about that is a couplefold. First, of course, the promise of the Chrome operating system is that it's always up to date, and I realize that there's a functional end to that if software exceeds the hardware capability. But the Chrome OS is so light and the, the high-end Chromebooks exist, including the Chromebook Pixel, I would say the hardware-wise is going to last much longer than that and can probably handle updates for many, many, many years before it's going to show any age in that regard. So uh, when someone you know talks about the potential of another Pixel, and there have been three, uh, or I'm sorry, two Pixels, the 2013 Pixel, the 2015 Pixel, which the only difference was, uh, I'm sorry, the form factor was basically the same, but they updated chips, and then they did make the super high-end one, which was almost $1,800, uh, have 16 gigabytes of, of, of RAM in addition to a high-end um, i7 chip, um, which is the, will be the fastest available of that generation. But um, it's super interesting that um, apparently they're going to put a pixel out, um, another pixel out this year, which, again, high-end specs, 6 or 18 gigabytes of RAM, um, a, a modern day KB Lake M5 or i5 processors. These are uh, like very um, thin, or I'm sorry, very fast devices. And then apparently going to be ultra thin, 10 millimeters thick is one rumor of the upcoming Pixel. Um, so, you know, pretty high end hardware. So, you know, I know you've used a Chromebook. Wes, um, as, as a, um, uh, and kind of a sub daily driver, right? It's, it's around quite a bit. Um, in addition to the MacBook that you carry around with you, can you see spending, let's say it's a thousand dollars on a high end Chromebook? Does the OS have enough function for you where that makes sense? 
Uh, not personally, but certainly looking at school, um, this is a really interesting conversation. I've, I've had a chance to talk to several of our teachers and administrators lately about this. And when we look at needing a common denominator for digital yeah. content and curriculum, I really think it's hard to not choose the Chromebook. Uh, we've got some wonderful tech integration happening right now with the iPad. I talked to Ben Wilkoff, actually, when we were out in uh, in Denver uh, dropping off Alexander. It'd be great to have him on the show to talk about some of the math stuff. They've adapted the uh, Pearson curriculum that was basically contentious in L.A. Unified when they were going with this big one-to-one, and it really wasn't finished. You know, that was part of the controversy in addition to kids, quote, hacking their iPads, which meant removing the mobile device management, et cetera. Um, you know, they're doing some pretty interesting things, you know, with math curriculum, and, and uh, we've got, you know, teachers doing, doing great stuff with kids solving problems and flipping classrooms, et cetera. I think for school, without a doubt, um, if I'm buying a new device and I'm advising parents, as I often do as a technology director, you know, look at the Chromebook. That that's in fact we have a parent who <clears throat> pretty pretty strong Windows user and had had asked as far as advice and stuff. And of course, I I recommended Chrome. You know, uh, his daughter might possibly need more than that, but you know, almost certainly Chrome, certainly in middle school, unless she got into some specialized computer science classes where she needed to, you know, run Python scripts and, and other kinds of either software compilers or other programs, you know, it was going to be fine. Um, in our family, it's interesting. We, we, you know, we've inherited devices and passed things down. <clears throat> My wife coming to join our school as a third grade teacher, uh, got a new laptop. And so she's made the move to a Mac. It'll, it'll be interesting to talk with her in a few months as far as that experience, because she's still, you know, having quite a bit of adjustment. Um, I find myself, you know, using apps like Skitch and um, just on a workflow basis with AirDrop, you know, I'm regularly sending a photo from my, my phone or my iPad, that whole continuity, well, not really continuity, but just, you know, having a, 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 a ecosystem of being able to move things back and forth. And then again, back to airplay. I mentioned that that's, that's a big deal. You can walk into, you know, many of our classrooms and conference rooms now and just open up your Apple device. So I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, I think you've, you got a great buy at a hundred something dollars for that pixel. Um, yeah. It is going to be really interesting to see if Google actually cuts off the updates for that. Right. I guess I kind of see that, um, we had a conversation this week with a faculty who wanted to, or a staff member who wanted to keep using their XP machine with this older piece of software. And we're like, no, that is end of life. That is not, you know, supported software. It is not, not safe and secure. We, we do not want that on our network. So it's going to be interesting to see what Google does with that. But I definitely, I mean, I'm using a Chromebook right now as my second screen. This is our, our Dell uh, mini. Well, not mini. It's a Dell 11 and uh, have just been super pleased with it. You know, I'm not, actually always bringing home all my stuff. So, you know, this, this is a, a machine that we tend to just have at home. And I did quite a bit of work on it the other night. So I find myself being able to do most of my work. But when it comes to uh, creating screencasts, when it comes to, uh, you know, Skitch, if you don't use Skitch by Evernote, Ever, it's not that by Geek of the Week, but evernote.com slash Skitch. You know, it is the killer app as far as annotation, screenshots, being able to readily grab stuff, throw on text, throw on arrows. Uh, just use that all the time. I mean, I pretty much use it every day. So 
I don't see myself making that switch. But right. if you're a school looking at student devices, if you're contemplating the cost of devices for faculty, uh, I think it's hard to ignore how powerful Chrome is. And I still think we're in early days with the touchscreen interface and, and apps and all of that. Um, you're not going to have an Apple Pencil Procreate type experience on, I don't think, a Chrome device as you can have on an iPad Pro today. But just keeps getting better, and it's uh, you know it's great to have competition, and it's great to see choices in in the landscape. So, how many devices, Jason, if you're willing, that, that hopefully there, there are no burgl- <laughs> no burglars listening to this who are gonna have right. your IoT home? Um, but uh, like, how many devices do you think you have at your house that can connect to the internet? Let's just ask that. Um, twenty five. And, you know, some of those things are, I mean, half of those are tiny devices, right? IoT devices, a couple of connected speakers, that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, you know, and, and I tend to, you know, like to pick older stuff. Um, I mean, I do have a couple of nice new things that I, I carry around um, occasionally. But, you know, I, I like I like doing things with hardware, which is part of why I like uh, Chrome or like using a Chromebook. But, yeah, that's um, quite a few of those devices. Um, I'll tell you something interesting. You mentioned Skitch, though. The one thing I miss when I'm not on a Mac, uh, it's Skitch ability. I'm wondering if you use this as well. Skitch is this feature I've seen on no other screenshot program ever, where if you drag the window on the bottom, you can drag it directly into a document. And hey, Google um, Google Docs. I do that like yeah. almost every day. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it is the most incredible time saver in the history of all time. Like it's it's so amazing to be able to. And then and I'll sometimes I'm I'm a seventy percent PC user now. Um, fifty percent PC, twenty five percent Mac, twenty five percent Chromebook. But um, the uh the twenty five percent time on the Mac. Part of the reason why I do that there is because I just love being able to direct an image directly, or I point image directly. Like it, it's an, it's a workflow that you can't beat in any way, shape, or form. So, um, yeah, I you know I like the Chromebook Pixel. It's a nice piece of hardware. It's beautiful. Um, it, it's great to use. If they can pull off a sturdy, thin one, I could see maybe being in the business for that for under a thousand dollars, maybe a year or so from now when the the retail price is under a thousand. I do think it's a pretty huge stretch. And um, again, I you know I love all all computers equally, but um, the um, you know it, they could find a six or seven hundred dollar one, which they're getting close. There's a lot of, of alternative ones now. In fact, my my newest Chromebook is is an attempt at one of those higher end ones, and it's becoming a lot cheaper because no one bought it. But if they can just create a six hundred dollar one that's in the middle of 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 the road that has a fast chip and, and eight gigs of memory, I think it'd have a real winner and a good high resolution screen. There's things that are close to that now, but they're, they're just not as ubiquitous because everyone wants a hundred dollar Chromebook. So very interesting platform um, to say the least. Welcome to Vicki Sedgwick, who's in our chat room and she says 25 devices, Jason, really? Um, I'll say I can answer a little bit better. We're, we're using the circle with Disney app. We're going to, they need to be a show sponsor because Wes mentions them almost every day or every week, but, um, I can flip through this and these are all the devices that either are connected or, um, have connected at our home. And interestingly, there was, there were some, there are some devices that I don't recognize. And so I actually put them into a group and paused them. And just before the show, the show realized that one of them was my Chromebook. Cause there was, anyway, I didn't, I didn't really think somebody had hacked our Wi-Fi, but I'm like, what is this device? I don't know what it is. So that's a eye opening question to ask people to think about. And sure. it, it is going to become 
you know, just kind of crazy because of the Internet of Things. Right. Well, and so did you mention a number for you? What is your app telling you? Uh, so I'm going to actually have to manually count. I'm going to I'm going to say, uh, yeah, it's it's like it's 25 or 30. Although okay. we've got we've got some devices that are visiting devices when when right. friends and the girls friends have, have, you know, come over. So but, yeah, we're we're in that ballpark. So yeah, and of course, my son has migrated and taken a few of those right. away. But. Yeah, and we're we're at nineteen tonight with my wife not home. So again, don't don't judge audience. But um uh yeah, and, and you know, a lot of that is, you know, some connected speakers and um you know, a printer that I have on the Wi Fi network too. So it's not all computers. But yeah, that's um yeah. So maybe that's an interesting feature we could start featuring the show. Bring on guests and say, How many devices are on your Wi Fi network? We're gonna judge you right now. If you've got less than twenty, you're out. No. <laughs> Hey, do you want to talk about your Alliances of uh, Doom article sequence there? That looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so um, as we've talked about in the past, I have an extraordinary amount of interest in um, virtual, virtual personal assistance. Um, and um, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm conducting academic research on. And the interesting thing about the topic for me is that, I mean, it's obvious that the home is going to go in this direction. I think a voice control makes more sense for the Internet of Things than um, you know, the kind of remote control that's available now via your very functional smartphones. And apparently that there is a an alliance in the works between um, the good people at Microsoft and the good people at Amazon. And it's not something that I thought would ever really happen. And the reason why is because um, Amazon and Microsoft fight in one other very important arena, um, and that's in cloud storage. Um, Amazon's AWS or web services and Microsoft's Azure Cloud um, are really locked into what my understanding is is a pretty strong death battle. Amazon's kicking Microsoft all over um, that that arena, but Microsoft is gaining a lot of speed as they're able to provide um, services oftentimes connected with already existing licensing, you know, uh, think Windows um, uh, uh, Software Assurance or Microsoft Office, which is another popular licensee. And so apparently they're going to start to work together and um, start to interconnect Cortana, which is the voice um, uh, uh, virtual, virtual uh, voice assistant on um, Windows Phone, so both of the Windows phones that are being used right now, and I mean just the two, the consumer's own, um, and then also uh, uh, Alexa um, would also have that available back and forth to one another. And having those things talk to each other or having the assistant um, uh, be able to to access those pieces, I think that's going to bridge an amazing gap right now exists between these ecosystems. I like Cortana. Um, I think Cortana is a very functional piece of hard, or software that exists on Windows 10 machines. Um, it, it seems like it might be a little better than Siri, for example, but it's not connected to anything. And that's partially a decision from a data standpoint. Um, Microsoft made an early decision that they didn't want cloud stuff to follow you around. They wanted you to train your local computer to serve you in context of being a virtual assistant. But if you start to connect it with a ubiquitous device that's available on the Internet, you know, like the Alexa speaker, um, I think that becomes extremely interesting. But, of course, that also means the two giants are going to interface with one another and that it could have all sorts of, of, of privacy um, or data concerns. So, first, um, Wes, have you joined us um, virtual personal assistant American owning people um, that have one of these beautiful devices listening to all of your conversations in your home? Just Siri, uh, which I guess is, is listening at all times. Um 
So no, but I, but I have played more, you know, the Chromecast app on the iPhone has become Google Home and I'll talk in my geek of the week a little bit about that. But no, not yet. I think, uh, I'm still, I'm still waiting for, you know, a significant price drop. I, it's, it's like, this is interesting. You know, what's your price? You know, are you, are you going to be able to sell out if it's $20? I was hearing a podcaster, you know, talk about how one of the Amazon lightning sales got them, you know, as far as the Amazon dot, dot, right? And so that pushed them over the edge. Um, this is a, a really, Kind of important thing. I think normal is going to be redefined. Okay. I think that right. we are going to soon be in a day where the, the vast majority of consumers are going to have some kind of device in their home that is constantly listening because I totally agree with you. Voice control is where it's at. And yes. even now with the Google home being able to say things like Google, show me Game of Thrones on you know, the name of your uh, Chromecast or whatever and being able to throw content with your voice. Right onto this screen that's over here, like that's really cool. So we're, we're continuing to get closer and closer to the Star Trek world. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what my price is. I guess if it, maybe if it was $10, but I'm, I'm still kind of on my ethical, I don't know if it's an ethical high horse, but <laughs> you know, just thinking about, do, do we want all the conversations to be recorded? But I, it's yep. like, it's, it's like other things with privacy. I think we're going to, just kind of get used to it and it's going to be a new normal. And at some point, this is, this is probably the tipping point for me. At some point, the function is going to be so amazing that you're going to be like, yeah, I need that. Yeah. You know, we have, I have shopped. I, I do most of the, the shopping and cooking in our home and love, to, love to do that and did the first Walmart order online, you mm-hmm. know, pick it up. I don't know if I've told the story, but it's really impressive with the app because you, you know, tell Walmart through the app when you're coming and it maps you. And that way the store knows exactly when you're coming. Oh, you don't have wow. to get out of your car. They just come out of the store. Hi, you're Mr. Fryer. Great. You know, and then they come back with all your groceries loaded up. Uh, and so. Wait, wait, we, wait, wait. Is that universally available at Walmarts? I think so. I mean, the one that's right across from our school has has a drive through, which may be different. Wow. Uh, I, I opted to shop at the larger one that just has more selection because there were a couple items that we wanted that the neighborhood market doesn't have, but the larger one did. I mean, it was amazing. And so I know there are people that are shopping with Amazon and this is what, you know, Walmart is responding to. And there's a giant battle there in terms of, of consumer groceries. And we're seeing that play out with Amazon purchasing whole foods and, you know, moving into that market. But at the point where there's an Alexa or there's, you know, Apple, AirPod, what, what are they, whatever they're calling their speakers. They're not AirPods, whatever the, I don't know. Apple's really pricing themselves out probably for me. So when a lower end device lets me, for instance, shop at Walmart and add to my list, right? Because right. this is a thing yeah. where like, hey, I need milk, you know? Yeah. First time I ever got a pager, a friend of mine was like, hey, this is it. You're, it's done because you're going to start getting the, the text. <laughs> you're going to say, you know, diapers, milk, orange juice. That, that's going to be your text message from, from, from home. But when those kinds of things that really can increase our, our efficiency, and, and, it's, and it, we're going to be talking to our houses, right? We're not going to be going to this one place, this one device, speak, doing that. You know, it's going to be like Picard on the Enterprise. Computer! Right. Little gray, black. You know, I mean, we're going we're gonna to say that kind of stuff. So well, but I, 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 I think it's, so it's more of a function thing that's going right. to be my tipping point than a price. 
Well, I got to say, I'm already doing to-do lists on, or I'm sorry, shopping lists on, uh, on our Google Home, and um, that's been really, uh, really effective. And as I may have mentioned, um, we got an exchange student last week, and so we were, we're uh, um, night for family plus one. And one of the things we've had to start doing is more aggressively planning our meals, and you know, being able to keep a joint to-do list together. You know, where when you're, you know, elbow deep in chicken, and you want to make sure that. Um, you know, a spice or, 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 or oil gets put on the next shopping list to be able to talk to your virtual personal assistant, in my case, a Google Home, uh, is, provides that function. It's really extraordinary. And I think that, you know, that function is going to end up bringing people there. And I'm also considering doing it for my, my, my dad for an upcoming holiday. And one of the reasons why I keep thinking for him is that when he first got a smartphone, I thought he'd be really into like radio. But he finds getting on the app and hooking to a speaker to be just not his thing. He just, you know, there's enough stations in the town he lives in. Um, but I'm thinking an Alexa might be a great gift for him because you can, I mean, I, I think that the easy Alexa, uh, best features is music in, in our, we have it in our dining rooms so and music in our dining room where you have access to Spotify and tune in radio and, um, podcasts by voice with, with just a few clicks of an install. But I think my dad would be into saying, you know, play me, you know, uh, rockabilly music or play me, um, you know, 70s country music and it finds a station and calls that good. I think that kind of stuff is really going to bring the masses in. It's part of the reason why I think the Alexa kind of jumped out ahead of the other ones in the first place. Well, you know, living in the world today where we can we can access infinite playlists of yes. specific artists that we have or the music that we've purchased or or music that's similar to that and we can train the, the algorithm, train the machine, you know, for these, I, I use Pandora, I know folks that love Spotify, um, it, that, it is amazing. Yeah. I've thought, and this is making me think also for my wife's classroom or it could be someone else, I thought how cool it would be to have a dot or an Alexa, maybe a home, and have the kids really push the envelope, right? As soon as Siri came out, our daughters were talking in the car, trying to carry on a conversation with her, you know, but she's not able at that point, really even now to connect dots between, you know, statements. You really can't, can't talk about something, you know, repeat it right. in terms of a conversation. You can ask discrete things, but I mentioned, I think on the show and, and this was something, well, maybe it was the, on the classroom 2.0 live I did a couple of weeks ago, uh, mentioning your app, Jason, the, uh, Microsoft, uh, what's that AI app, uh, AI now or something. Yeah. What was that one called? I'm trying to try to remember. It, right. But it, um, that got me, you know, over to the, um, over to the Google home site and they had, have, have a pretty nice grid that will, you know, show you what's possible in terms of the app and, and what kinds of right. things you can And this, again, it's incremental change, right? We're yep. seeing a little bit here, a little bit here, but... Um, have you asked, have, it, have any of your staff asked to put one of those devices on your network yet? <laughs> no, interestingly, our Meraki uh, wired and wireless network uh, misidentifies some things as Alexa devices, which are not. They're like some Linux things or cameras or things that we have, uh, but they haven't, and that that'll be interesting. Um, here's a little nugget that's not an, an article, but uh, doing some analysis of our network today, um, we're going to be making some adjustments about this. Uh, over 12% of our network traffic yesterday was on Instagram and on Snapchat, which we have open. Um, and I even wow. you can see the specific users. We don't have deep packet inspection 
in and we don't require students to log in, but based on the names that they've given to their iPhones, I even know the name and in, in family, which we're not going to disclose and talk about at all. But, you know, there, there are several kids that had over 450 megs of, of uh, Snapchat, you know, wow. during school time. And so anyway, it's, this has been something that we've kind of gone back and forth and we want kids to amplify stuff, but rather than block things, we're going to probably, you know, uh, just throttle that or have a quota. I've, in fact, I got after the show, I'll probably be looking at that on our network on what we can do with that. But I'm not sure what an Alexa would do, you know, bandwidth wise, but I definitely think, I mean, that that's a cool cutting edge, you know, kind of STEM thing to do, right. Is to say what, where are the boundaries of AI? And then especially if during the year you could see, I'm going to even anthropomorphize, you could see her, you know, see Alexa, which I'm now I just ruined the podcast for whoever's paying this out loud. Hope you're on headphones. Sorry. But, you know, he who should not shall not be named. Let's just call it Voldemort. So, you know, the, <laughs> the, the device name being able to see incremental improvement of that. I mean, that's you're that's seeing technological change. That's that's seeing the progress of A.I. So. I don't know. We may we may look at that. We may have to buy that out of pocket. I don't think we're going to be buying that out of our technology budget, full disclosure. But, you know, that might be a personal device. And we allow teachers to put, you know, phones and, and iPads and, and personal devices on the network. So I don't know. I, I don't think anybody has that. Um, so we'll see. Have you heard of anybody doing that at school up in Montana or do you know? No, the the one thing that I'd heard some rumbling about, and I haven't been in a, in a physical school building in seven years, but I, I have heard some rumbling from a couple folks that, that, that work in technical services for districts uh, about Netflix. And one of the things that their debate was, was first of all, it's not entirely clear you can use a Netflix account from a performance uh, right standpoint. And so that that's a real challenge. But ignoring that, like shocking rabbit hole that Wes and I could go down and then talk until next Wednesday. Right. Um, ignoring that it was at times during the day, sucking up more bandwidth than they would have assumed based on the number of streams. Um, because they like, you know, they, in a couple of cases, they allow YouTube and they just cap it within a band and they almost get no um, people complaining about that. When they try to do that with, with uh, Netflix, um, it didn't handle that very well. It didn't scale very well for them. And I haven't uh, looked to see if that's real or if they just perceived that or not by, by looking up the streams. But, you know, it did suck up more bandwidth than they would have assumed, even though they understood that there was a legitimate educational purpose. Right. And we've got I need to look at that. We we our teachers can now request if they want to to show Netflix. It's not open mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, but I, that's one of those firewall reports that I need to be running and then checking and kind of right. seeing what it's doing. Hey, shout out to Peggy George on several things. Uh, seeing AI by Microsoft is the name of the app. So thank you for that, Peggy. Thank you. And then she mentioned Eric Kurtz, who does a regular show. The next one is, is tomorrow night, actually. Uh, it's a Google user group meeting. And he said, she says it's amazing. And they are one to 3 p.m. Eastern and she's got the link there. So maybe we'll, we'll put that in the show notes and let people connect there. Cause it really, all these kind of things. Um, you know, at some point, ed tech is the, the nice and shiny and wow, isn't that cool? And then, you know, those things, oops, those things can quickly become, hey, wow, look what I did with my students or, or look right. how I was able to Im- improve my own efficiency. So, well, Jason, it's speaking of shocking, I, I think it's the top of the hour. So it uh, is. Shall probably, we geek of the weekend? I think we should. 
Um, let me give you one last 10 second article just because I put it in there because there was almost nothing interesting. YouTube made a massive announcement today. They've changed their logo and then there's the, the minorest of minor updates. Apparently they're taking it when so people do video incorrectly and put the phone like this. Um, so it's upright and so you don't get the Y, but you get the tall. They take away the black bars on both sides of that. So apparently they're, they're shaping the window appropriately and they changed their logo. But there was a lot of hand wringing on the internets today about the change of the YouTube logo. I personally do not care. The big change that evidently is coming, and I haven't read something saying it's not, is they are taking away the video editor. It's been yes. a fairly underutilized feature. But for YouTube to take that away, really, I mean, that's a huge opportunity for we video. I had a chance to lead some workshops uh, this August up in Maine or uh, in Vermont with we video and doing green screen and very impressed with the way that that platform has matured. But right. it's a commercial platform. And so it's been great to have, you know, a fallback free. So, yeah, I don't I noticed the cosmetic changes as well. But what I think is going to be the bigger deal is, you know, the loss of the editor. So, yep. Great point. All right. Okay. Uh, let me go ahead and start the Geek of the Week this week. Um, I don't think I've shared this, actually. And the reason why I mention it is because I've been doing a lot of screencasting this week in preparation um, of the opening of my program next Tuesday. It's a screencast for teachers and students and published off to um, uh, to YouTube or to Google Drive. But um, we've made fun of the microphone I use in the past. Um, this is the um, Blue from Yeti. Um, I'm sorry, it's it's the Yeti from Blue, <laughs> excuse me, um, and it is a really wonderful USB-based microphone, and if you keep an eye on it, it goes on sale quite frequently. It's $125 on Amazon right now, but this microphone um, is is oftentimes for under $99. I've seen it during, you know, big sales, uh, Amazon Prime Day, uh, uh, Cyber Monday after Black Friday in the fall. Um, I've seen it as low as, as $60, and it makes an incredible difference, even if you're using a high-end laptop like a, a Mac Air, for example or a MacBook Pro that have the beautiful microphone array microphones on them that do a fairly great job of reproducing audio. Plugging in your own external mic um, oftentimes is better, but um, this gives you a really high-end, rich sound um, that I can tell a, a palpable difference when I listen to podcasts where I record it based on the laptop mic as opposed to plugging in an external mic. Um, and I believe both times I bought this, it was for under two, under under $100. So um, the Yeti by Blue, it's a beautiful USB microphone. It comes with a wonderful desktop stand. I happen to have it in a, um, a retractable arm so that I can put this a little closer to my face. Um, but, yeah, wonderful microphone, um, great platform, and, and a cheap way to upgrade the audio on a desktop or laptop. All right. And my Geek of the Week is the Porta HDMI to component RGB uh, video for $26 from Amazon. And the reason is that a friend of mine uh, has a beautiful, had a beautiful 60-inch plasma TV, which, you know, a number of years ago was like a $2,000 TV. And his HDMI ports went out, and so they wouldn't reliably show HDMI, and it was just going to be expensive to replace it. And so this is like sign of the times. He's, he's he ditched it. You know, it's a sixty-inch plasma TV, but it doesn't work very well with HDMI. So for twenty-six dollars, I have a converter from Amazon that takes uh, an HDMI signal and puts it right into Component, and it it actually shows the resolution. I think it's like. 
it's taking in at like 960 by something or other. It's like a 1080 signal. And then it's, it's putting it, uh, it's converting it down to like 1280 by 720. It looks really nice. And this is a shout out to Chromecast because probably maybe even three or four years ago, I picked up a Chromecast maybe about the same time I got a Nexus 7 tablet to just kind of, you know, give, give the uh, Android tablet a try. It's been sitting literally in a box, you know, because we're an Apple TV family. Surprise, surprise. Well, I don't want to drop $150 on this, uh, this TV. Um, and so I plugged the Chromecast right. in. Wow, am I impressed. I love the background. I mean, just thinking of a digital picture frame, the integration that it offers with Flickr. Yes, Flickr. If Alan Levine is listening, still love Flickr. <laughs> still post albums there, you know, and I can select multiple albums. And it's just the Flickr app on Apple TV hasn't been updated, I don't know, for how long. You cannot set it as a slideshow on the latest generation Apple TV. So really impressed with that. Um, the other thing that was kind of cool is that once you start something like with the phone, a YouTube video, a Pandora channel, and I say stream this, I was under the impression that it was always coming from the phone. No, it doesn't because you can have it actually disconnect and it will continue to play your Pandora channel, play your YouTube. So yep. you're really telling the Chromecast, hey, take this stream of audio or video and then play it until which time it is interrupted. So since we already had a Chromecast laying around, you know, we got like a $24 uh, wall mount. I haven't put it on the wall yet, uh, but, you know, sign of the time. So if, if you know somebody who, you know, has an HDMI go out and, and their TV is otherwise good, hey, there, there are ways to get more mileage out of that screen. And I did hear though that plasma screens take up a lot of electricity and so that's a that's a downside. And so your newer newer technologies are gonna be a little bit more friendly. So um that may be something to consider, but that is my geek of the week. So there you go. We want to encourage everyone to please check out our links, which you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. We want to give the shout out to Vicki, Peggy, and Marta in our chat room for having a lively conversation there and uh, chiming in to help improve some of the things we're sharing and also provide some additional links. Jason, where can people find you and what is uh, what is on your near-term horizon here in the next couple months? You got any, any consulting coming up? Uh, because... Um, as we want to mention, Jason and I are available for hire uh, from varying degrees to come to your conference or uh, come to your workshop and, and talk about some of these issues or, or others that may be near and dear to our hearts when it comes to ed tech. Well, you can find me um, on Twitter on Tech Savvy Teach, uh, where I post mostly links. I sometimes like to get into some lighter conversation on Twitter, but I think it's a wonderful uh, place to share your thoughts and things that you're reading so that others can benefit from from what your eyes are doing and in, in calling it excellent resources. Um, I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, the Pacific Northwest ISTE affiliate, and I'm available as a trainer there, uh, through there as well, and I book um, Google and um, blended learning trainings in addition to uh, custom trainings for districts. Um, and I don't have anything in the immediate horizon, partially because, um, as I've mentioned in the past, I'm working on my doctorate and I am knee deep in um, um, interesting uh, statistical uh, analysis systems right now. So I hope to be uh, through that process within the next couple of months and then finish writing that bad boy and put it away. But 
Um, uh, things I'm interested in right now from a training standpoint, I think Google Classroom has come so far in the last two years to become a really great centerpiece for teachers. And um, having used it with a couple of districts now, and I've taught trainings on it now a couple of times in the past few years, it's really an interesting thing. And um, I think the Google Suite, and I think the same is true about the Microsoft 365 Suite, too. They're both very functional suites, but it's pretty amazing what can you, you can do just in the Internet now, which is part of the reason why Chromebooks are so persuasive to me. So what about us? <laughs> you just said if on the Amazon link, there's a you can get a free snack if you spend twenty five dollars. So can they, <laughs> can they come deliver that to my house in the next uh, thirty minutes? Right, I can uh, use some moments. That's right. Uh, you can find me online at, on Twitter at w fryer. You can find my blog at speedofcreativity.org. And I think I've decided to try to go to Cairo. Uh, it's not not finalized, but. <clears throat> I think we're going to try to make that happen in November. So that would be an exciting thing. So uh, hopefully though, we'll also, I've got to, got to get my act together with professional development stuff. We're going to hopefully try to host a Google camp, a Google, like a Google summit, but a, like a Google camp OKC in the fall, uh, possibly cool. in November, and then look at a STEM workshop uh, as well as an iPad media camp in June at our school. So anyway, Things are going well. We hope that you have enjoyed the EdTech Situation Room. However, you have found us. We want to encourage you to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Definitely subscribe. You can become, I think we have 38 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, but we do have quite a few downloads, particularly on the audio version. And you can find 32 kilobit, lightly, uh, well, heavily compressed, uh, lightly, uh, light on your download about a 15 megabyte, megabit no, megabyte download for your smartphone. And uh, our, our episodes end up at uh, 360p, about 200 megs, something like that. So you can certainly subscribe to us. Let us know if there are things that you'd like us to talk about, articles you'd like to share. You can use the hashtag EdTechSR, become one of our wonderful chat room live viewers and contribute to the conversations that we have. We're going to send all of our good wishes and prayers up to Montana. We want the rain and moisture of Texas to go up. Uh, but unfortunately I do not think our ed tech powers will, will extend so far. So hang on there, Jason, get a mask. And uh, if you need to come down to Oklahoma for a brief respite for some better quality air, you know, the sun is gone. We've got we've got the guest room open. So just, just let me know you. when you're coming. So until next time, folks, have a great night and a great day, whatever it is, and stay safe out there. Good night.